Hey, I have something really serious I have to talk to you about before I preach my sermon. When the turkey arrives in the kitchen, inside of the turkey is a neck, a gizzard, and the liver. The turkey is the edible packaging for the most precious parts of the turkey. No? Okay, all right. Who? Anybody else here? Eat, just, am I the only one? Who else? Come on. Be, be, be proud. Come on. Liver, gizzard, neck. Yeah. It goes in a saucepan. You steam it with some sage. Right? Okay. My father's father passed it down to him. He passed it down to me, and my kids aren't having any of it. But I have tried. So I only get, because Vanessa's family is from New York, that that we do the rotation thing. And so this is my off year of being able to have one of my favorite parts of Thanksgiving so you can feel sorry for me now. So, all right. And then I get them next year, all right? Now, this is the second part. The cranberry sauce. This is important, people. This is important, right? The cranberry sauce. We don't want a homemade cranberry sauce. We don't want one from scratch. We want the one when you open the can and turn it upside down, it can stand up by itself, right? Come on, there you go, come on, right? The gelatinous, right, it's congealed high fructose corn syrup with cranberry color, right? I get it, I know, I know, but you slice it up into those thin slices and then you pick a piece off and it goes onto the turkey as you take a bite. Who else? Anybody else? All right. Yeah. So when we go to Vanessa's family for Thanksgiving, I'm going to be showing up with my can of cranberry gelatin. Right. All right. All right. So let me, let's a couple of giveaways. One for Travis. Come on. For his travels. And then where, where is Dale and Lisa Stevens? Are they in here? They're all Dances with the Stars. They're going to be on the next episode. They were tearing it up last night at the, uh, at the Fall Back in Love with Marriage. There, there is video on Facebook if you want to see it. So now I know most of you, that's what you're going to be doing for the next few minutes, and that's okay. I forgive you because it's really that good. It's really that good. Maybe at the end of the service, they'll come up and give us a demonstration. So we'll see. We'll see. Hey, so just a, a couple of other quick things, and, uh, and then we want to dive into our series that we're on race and politics. Come on, this has been a good series for our church, has it not? So good at all three campuses, and uh, 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 it'll, be, it'll go through next weekend. So we're moving around campuses. We do that every, every, uh, every once in a while. So we'll be at the Suffolk campus uh, next week, and then uh, I believe uh, Pastor Jamie will be here, and then uh, uh, Pastor Justin will be in, uh, in Williamsburg. So um, it, uh, North Riverside Baptist Church, who we rent uh, space from here and do a shared campus facility here in the building, they do a missions project every month. And so some of those, we want to jump in and do it with them. And so this month, they're collecting children's books that will go to uh, Riverside Elementary, which is our neighbor right across the street. And so let, can we just, at the end of the month is when they're going to deliver them. Let, let's make sure they've got to make multiple trips because our church jumped in with their church are you with me? So just as you're out shopping, just pick up a children's book. It could be a Christmas book. It could be a nursery rhymes book, but just a book for a child. Don't, don't clean out your house and give us the used up book, right? You, do, you can donate that in some other fact. We want a new book, new books that 
can go to these uh, kids at Christmas. So, uh, and you can uh, bring those here, and you can drop them off at the Welcome Center. It'll be a good spot for us to drop them off, and then we'll make sure they get to the right place. So over the next couple of weeks, make sure when you come to church, uh, bring your book. Uh, the other thing is on November 30th, November 30th at 7 p.m. at Bethel Church on Todd's Lane is going to be the first of what we hope are many uh, citywide worship nights. So our band is going to be there with them, participating. Many other churches are going to be there, but it's uh, November 30th at 7 p.m. Uh, at Bethel Church on Todd's Lane. And so uh, that's going to be a great step for us to take also that's a practical response to this series that we've been in because part of the purpose of that is to bring churches of different color together to worship. Come on, one God that created us all. And so I hope that you'll be joining us that night. We'll see you there. So, all right, Race and Politics is the series that we've been in. For here at this campus, we've been digging around in Matthew 15 and Matthew 16. And what we found there is that before Jesus gave his, uh, one of his declarative reasons for why he came, we know he came to seek and to save the lost, but he said he also came to build his church. And one of the reasons uh, why he spent time in 15, in the first part of 16, before he gave that announcement, is that he wanted to help the church to understand 2,000 years ago that they're going to be struggling with the same problems that we're struggling with today, which is racial division and political division. And so that's one of the reasons why we've been in this, because the church is supposed to be the tip of the spear in bringing unity to its community, and we suffer because we cannot even unify ourselves so these, here are a couple of highlights from the last couple of weeks, and then I want to get into two factors that I think inhibit us uh, from experiencing the harmony that we're supposed to. Uh, but this is one of the quotes from, an, from earlier in the series, is, is that this is my definition of harmony. Harmony is not achieved through uniformity, but rather through diversity that is in perfect cooperation with one another. Harmony is not achieved through uniformity, but rather through diversity that is in perfect cooperation with one another. Our notes are always online through the website, the PDF document. You can download it. So, and here's the other ways that I talked uh, last week about how, as a family, we're not raising colorblind kids. We don't want our kids to be colorblind. We want them to be color celebrative. Color celebrative. That we want them to see the diversity that God Himself created. It was His idea, and to not be blind to it, but to see it and celebrate it and cherish it. And that's the kind of church that we're going to be here at City Life. All right, so let me talk to you about two factors tonight. One I'm calling the fear factor, not connected to the show in any way, right? The fear factor. And then the other is called the Barzillai factor. I believe these two factors are two of the greatest impediments that stop us from experiencing the kind of unity that we're supposed to have with each other. So, are right, you ready? 2 Timothy 1.7. 2 Timothy 1.7. I blogged about this first one a little bit a couple of weeks ago, and so I've been saving this for uh, one of our final sermons here at the Newport News campus to dig into it a little bit further. But 2 Timothy 1.7 says this, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now I'm reading out of the New King James for that particular verse because I feel like they render it better than some of the other translations. But in some other translations, you'll find 
find that last word, which is in the Greek, it's sophronismos, and that word is translated in some other Bibles as sound mind or discipline and judgment. And so sound mind is the one that we picked here. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Now, whenever there is a word that appears in the Bible in the original language, and it's the only time in all of Scripture that it appears, I think that's God's way of bringing emphasis to something. If it's the only time, this word sophronismos, in all of the Bible, in all of the Bible, that it only appears one time, and it's right here in this letter that Paul's writing to his young protege, Timothy. Let me give you what I think the definition of this word. My spirit, when renewed by the Holy Spirit, should transform my mind in a way that is biblically sound, leading to self-discipline and good judgment. I should be characterized by this description as a devoted follower of Jesus. I don't think we're supposed to pick whether it's supposed to be sound mind or discipline or judgment. This word embodies all of those things. And that the only way we're ever going to be a Sophronismus follower of Christ is when the Holy Spirit supernaturally works inside of us to change us and transform us. And if you don't think that you need to be transformed and changed, then have someone follow you around on Black Friday And video all of your responses when people get in front of you at line. Right? Just saying. I was joking with Vanessa during the video announcements that because there's Black Friday, we should have what we call Confessional Saturday. Right? Where there's a confessional that we set up and follow the leading of the Catholic Church where you can come in and confess all of your sins of of anger and rage and greed over the last 24 hours. And I'm going to be in line with you, so I don't even know who we're going to even get in to hear those confessions. So... Our humanity is ugly sometimes, is it not? And what Paul is saying to Timothy is there has to be a transformation that takes place inside of us that changes us. There has to be something inside of us so that I am no longer a victim to my humanity. My will needs to be supernaturally empowered by the Holy Spirit to act and respond differently than the way I used to before I became a devoted follower of Christ. Now, this is the part that I think is important. Paul does not say, for God has not given us the emotion of fear. He says, God has not given us the spirit of fear because the emotion of fear is important for us. The emotion of fear is an important part of the human experience, it keeps us safe. Right? It, it's that intuitive ability that sometimes we're in a situation and a circumstance where we feel that something's not right and we are able to get out of that situation. I've been talking with some people. You might have seen my post earlier today that on Facebook where uh, Derek just got his driver's license this week. Come on, I know. Some of you, you, you can leave now when you can get off the road before he's, he's out there with you, right? So, so, but this morning, they had something to do, and Derek's driving, and Ethan and Claire, they're getting in the car together, and they're leaving the house all together, and Vanessa and I are standing there crying, right, in the sidewalk as we're being left behind. No, I'm just kidding. We were like, come on. So... <laughs> But I was talking with Vanessa that I kind of had my own epiphany this week that the trepidation, or dare I say fear, that sometimes I have has nothing to do with him driving because he's an amazing driver and Scotty Moriarty was one of his teachers. So we know he's a good driver, right? Come on. And so I realized one of my fears is that I'm not there to be the protector. 
That, that it's not the driving part, it's the world having access to him and my children without me being able to be there to protect. And so part of what we've hopefully done as good parents is to teach them to trust the intuitive sense of fear that sometimes comes into the human heart. The emotion of fear is a gift that God has given to us. Paul is not saying, and this verse gets misused, and so people, they run from fear, and not all fear is bad. What Paul says is he's not given us a spirit of fear, which means that fearfulness is not supposed to characterize who we are. It's not supposed to be the definer. It's supposed to be a part of our emotional mix, but it's not supposed to be the ultimate characterization of who we are, which is what he means when he says he's not given us a spirit of fear. The emotion of fear is an important part of our relationship with God. Listen to these. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, is the foundation of true wisdom, and all who obey his commands will grow in wisdom and praise him forever. Proverbs 15.33 says, Fear of the Lord teaches wisdom, humility precedes honor. Revelation 15.4 says, Who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. Now listen to Luke 12, 4 through 5. Dear friends, do not be afraid of those who want to kill your body, they, for they cannot do any more to you after that. But I tell you, whom to fear? Fear God, who has the power to kill you and then throw you into hell. Yes, he's the one to fear. That's our memory verse for the children tonight in kids' church. No, I'm just kidding. One of the things that bothers me sometimes when people are, are, are teaching out of Scripture is they edit the Holy Spirit. Don't, let's not do that. Let's not edit him. And so they, what they want to say is the word respect should be there. Now, respect is an important part of the fear of the Lord, but it's just a part of the fear. You know what else is a part of the fear of the Lord? Being afraid. And you know why we know that? Because every time we read those verses in the Bible, it doesn't say the respect of the Lord. There are verses like that. This says to fear the Lord. There is a healthy fear that we're supposed to have of him. Is it respectful? Yes, are we supposed to be afraid at times? Yes, because we're supposed to be in awe of the consequences that he sometimes needs to bring in response to the foolishness of our lives. When my children were little, and, and, and even now, I would say, even though they're teenagers, I've always wanted them to love me. I've always wanted them to honor me. I've always wanted them to respect me, and I have to earn that. But you know what else I've always wanted? I've wanted them to fear me. Just a little bit. But just enough to help correct wrong behavior because of the consequences that they know can come forth out of dad. God says to you and to me, love me, honor me, glorify me, celebrate me, but it will do you well to be a little bit afraid of who I am as your sovereign. Fear is an important part of our journey in this life. I think what I'm calling the fear factor is an important issue when it comes to this idea of racial and political division is one is because the Christian church is dismissive of fear, which is what we've just talked about, 
And then secondly, once we get to a place intellectually where we're willing to embrace the idea that fear as an emotion, not as a a characterization, but as an emotion is healthy, the next step is that now I have a responsibility to not be dismissive of the fears of others, but to understand them, to embrace them, and to even feel them in response, even if I don't share their circumstance. Listen to Romans 12, 15. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Some translations render it rejoice with those who rejoice, right? Be sorrowful with those who are in sorrow. You've heard me say many times, and this is another example, I believe this is a fill-in-the-blank text. What does that mean? It means the principle is emotion, and the the fill-in-the-blank is happiness and sorrow, but I believe that Paul was teaching them, and he's teaching us, that we're supposed to, as devoted followers of Christ, to not just have emotional empathy, which is having the proper response to the feeling of another, even if I'm not feeling it myself, that that's the bare minimum that we're supposed to have as devoted followers of Christ. We're supposed to go beyond emotional empathy, which is what this verse in Romans 12, 15 is commanded us, and we're being told that we should feel the emotion that they are feeling even, with, even if we don't share their circumstance. How is that possible? So Moss. The only way that that can happen is when the Holy Spirit begins to rejuvenate who we are on the inside. And that we can step into a moment with other people, even though I am different from them, even though my circumstance may be different from them, even if I'm not convinced they should even have the fear that they have, the Holy Spirit says to us through Paul in Romans, feel that fear with them if you love them. And if you're not sure whether or not you should love them or not, then just make a quick read through the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says to love your enemy. He says it right there, right? You don't get any credit for loving people that love you. Doesn't he say that? It's a little bit of a paraphrase, but that's what he says. You don't get any credit for that because everybody can do that. Then he says, love your enemy. Love the person who despises you. And he's not just talking about doing the right thing by them. He's talking about having emotion towards them. The fear factor is the ability as devoted followers of Christ supernaturally that we're supposed to have to connect to and relate to the fears of other people around us. And at times, it will lead to you taking up the cause that they now have, even though it's not your circumstance, because you know the circumstances that created that fear in them need to change, and God's going to call you to be an advocate for it. Our relationship with Christ is love-based, but the context of that love relationship is one of command. Listen to Matthew 28, 20. Teach these new disciples to obey all the suggestions that I have given to you. Nope. Teach these new disciples to obey all the ideas that I've shared with them that hopefully they too will one day embrace. Nope. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands 
that I have given to you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, we like that last part, he's with us always to the end of the age, because we've always read that. It's one of comfort. He's going to be with me, and I'm never going to be alone. And that's part of our relationship with him. But that's not the context of this verse. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you and be sure of this. I'm going to be there watching if you don't. And you should be afraid of me a little bit. We have a command relationship with Christ. One of authority and deference. One of command and submission. That he is our sovereign and he expects us to yield to him. To tell our will that we're going to yield to his commands, whether or not we prefer them, like them, agree with them or not, that's not the nature of our relationship. Can we talk to him about it? Absolutely. Can we have a conversation with him about it? Yes, we can. But we cannot use the conversation that's born out of our confusion as a reason to delay the obedience that he expects of us as our sovereign king. He loves us. But he expects obedience from us. Matthew 6.21 says this, Wherever your treasure is, there, your, there the desires of your heart will be also. You've heard us talk about this verse many times here at City Life. We paraphrase this verse as right, right feelings follow right actions. Right feelings follow right actions. The world operates in the reverse of that. But not as devoted followers of Christ. Jesus is clear here. He says, where your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. What's the idea of your treasure? It means that you're choosing to value something. through Your, your, your will is choosing to value something. You're valuing it. And when you make a conscious decision to value it, then there is passion and feeling that comes to follow. It's a fill-in-the-blank text. Right feelings follow right actions. So oftentimes when we're talking with married couples that are in crisis, it's one of the first principles that we teach them. Oftentimes they say, well, we don't feel in love anymore. And what we say to them is right feelings will follow right actions. You don't do it because you feel the emotion of love. You've got to do the right thing born out of character. And if you continue in that, the love will return. Because right feelings follow right actions. As devoted followers of Christ, as we look around in our community and sometimes, yes, even our church, we find people that we differ from. We find people that that their life experience is not the same as ours. And yes, sometimes they have fears that we do not share. But we're called to a sophronismos life. That the rejuvenating power of the Holy Spirit gets a hold of us and begins to change us so that we get to this place where we're willing to say, God, I don't feel that fear that they have, but I want to. So I'm going to begin to take some practical steps so that my emotions will catch up, which looks like conversations, which looks like time listening to one another. It looks like sometimes spending time in their world, especially if it's a a world that's foreign to you. Right feelings will follow right actions. There is a command that he gives to us in the church is supposed to be teaching the rest of the world that there's something beyond emotional empathy and that there's a place that we can get to when we feel the feelings that other people have even if we don't share their circumstance. The fear factor is this. 
whenever I'm being dismissive of the fears of others who are different from me in race and politics, but also refusing to feel their fear, especially if I don't share their circumstance. All right, you ready for part two? The Barzillai factor. The Barzillai factor. Nehemiah 7, 63 to 65. Nehemiah 7, 63 to 65. Three families of priests, Hobiah, Akots, and Barzillai, also returned. In parentheses, this Barzillai had married a woman who was a descendant of Barzillai of Gilead, and he had taken her family name. They searched for their names in the genealogical records, but they were not found. So they were disqualified from serving as priests. The governor told them not to eat the priest's share of food from the sacrifices until a priest could consult the Lord about the matter of using the Urim and the Thummim, the sacred lots. Now, if we're not careful as we're reading the Bible, we'll just push right past this stuff. But everything in Scripture is there for a reason. There's, there's nothing extra. There's, there's, there's nothing that, 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 that's uh, superfluous. There's, there's nothing in there that, that, that God, in looking at the final work, goes back and reads it again and says, you know, I, I probably could have done a better job with that part. It was perfect when it came from him the first time. And everything is in here is instructive to us. So what, what is this about? It's important to understand that what's happening here in history is that Nehemiah was in captivity with many of the other Israelites, and Israel was in ruin. It was done. It was finished. It was, it was destroyed. Cities were laid waste. The temple had been destroyed. The practice of Jewish worship had come to an end. There were no more sacrifices, the feast, everything. It was a, it was a nation that was deceased. And as we get to the end of the service, what we'll see is that God spoke to Nehemiah and called him to be a builder of a nation again. So he comes, they rebuild the city, and part of rebuilding the city was to also not to just give them a place to live, but also to restore the worship that they brought to the world as a gift to help us to understand how we connect with God and to be a prophetic image of the one day coming of Christ. And so they're back here, and now priests have to be found. They, 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 they've, got to re, they've got to go out and find the people who can one day serve as priests again. But it's, just, it's not as though anybody can do it. Because the Mosaic Law says that the only way that you can serve as a priest in the nation of Israel is if you are from the tribe of Levi. And so your connection to your responsibility to be a priest to your nation is through your cultural heritage. It's through your name. And for them, cultural heritage was a spiritual heritage. So this guy, Barzillai, and we don't know his real name because it says that this is the name that he took. He was someone who believed that he was of the tribe of Levi. But because he had taken a name that didn't belong to him and they could not find him in the genealogical records, the divine purpose that God put him on this earth had now been supplanted. Now who's Barzillai? Why would, why would he want to take this name? 
There was a Mesopotamian practice. It wasn't a Jewish practice, but a Mesopotamian practice in that region that if a family had no sons, the father could arrange for the daughter when they are married that the son will take their name, like we're going to do when Claire gets married. And so, and so, so, because the family wants its name to continue on. Now, God was not insensitive to this need. Which is, which is why the principle in the Mosaic Law of the kinsman redeemer, it means many things, but one of the things it means is this, that, that if there is a, a, a man who, who dies, that, that a brother, a brother who's not yet married would come and take this woman to be his wife. They could have multiple wives then, so he could take other wives. But the first child that he would have with this person whose husband was deceased, the first male child would carry forward the name of the deceased husband. God was not insensitive to the need for, for lineage to continue on, but this Mesopotamian culture was different. It required the man to abandon his, his, his heritage completely. And just take the name. Now, why would he want to do that? Well, I think he's looking around at Israel and he sees a failed nation. I think he understands the significance of being a priest. He would have been raised with that understanding and belief. But I think he realizes there might not ever be the restoration of the Jewish faith in the history of the world. It might be done. Even though prophets have said there would be a turn. Even though prophets like Jeremiah said there is a remnant and that God is going to rebuild, it's hard when your circumstances call the promises of God a lie. And so he has an opportunity to connect himself to a different family. And it wasn't just any family because Barzillai is one of the heroes of the Bible. When you turn to the story of King David when his son Absalom has a coup and takes control of the nation, steals the throne from his father, David and his loyal subjects are on the run for their life. And one of the families in the land of Gilead was Barzillai. And Barzillai is mentioned throughout the story of David's return to the throne. In fact, on his deathbed, one of the people that David names that he wants kindness to be shown to is the family of Barzillai. So this family, that this priest from a failed nation is losing his spiritual heritage in exchange for a new cultural heritage, there's a lot there to lure him in. Are you with me? There's reason for him to say, I want to take this name. They were a wealthy family. They were a family with notoriety. So he was willing to say, I'm going to connect myself culturally to this family, even though my spiritual heritage might be at risk. Now, why am I telling you all that? Because I think there's a principle in that story. Because I think everything in the Bible is instructive. I'm calling it the Barzillai Factor. Whenever I allow a cultural heritage to transcend my spiritual heritage, my divine purpose as a peacemaker is at risk. I must identify as a child of God and a disciple of Jesus above all else. Let me read that again. The Barzillai factor. Whenever I allow my, a cultural heritage to transcend a spiritual heritage, my divine purpose as a peacemaker is at risk. I must identify, identify as a child of God and disciple of Jesus above all else. Does that mean I forsake my cultural heritage? Absolutely not. 
Does it mean that, that I don't make issues that are important to my culture, to my ethnicity? Do I relegate them to a place of unimportance? Absolutely not. What it means, though, is as a child of God and as a follower of Jesus Christ, the character of Christ defines the response to the cause I embrace because of the ethnicity and the cultural heritage that I have. When my identity as a child of God is transcendent above all else, it instructs me in my reaction. It instructs me in my steps. It instructs me in my attitude. It instructs me, and what I would argue is that when we pursue a cause that is sacred or important to us because of our cultural heritage or maybe because of our life experience, that if I honor the transcendent identity that I'm supposed to walk with in this life as a child of God and devoted follower of Christ, I'm going to accomplish more through the character of Christ than I would by allowing a humanity in me that is unchecked by the Holy Spirit to move and speak and act on my behalf. The fear factor and the Barzillai factor are two factors that are keeping the church from experiencing the unity that God put us in the world to reveal. The ability to feel the fears of one another supernaturally because of the power of the Holy Spirit at work in me. A willingness to say, I have a cultural heritage. I have a, an ethnicity that's important to me, but that will always be behind my identity as a child of God and my identity as a devoted follower of Christ. And the character of Christ will always lead me forever forward. I recognize that these things that we're talking about tonight, these are hard things. These are hard things. I recognize that some of the things that we're saying to each other, preaching to myself tonight, I recognize that these are not going to come without great effort, without great change. I, I recognize that. But is not that, is not that part of our legacy as devoted followers of Christ? Is it an accident that what birthed the church was the resurrection of the dead? Is it coincidental that the way the church had its moment of inception that the founder of our religion, our Savior Jesus Christ, came onto the scene as someone who had been dead for three days. Now that means a lot of things, but you know one of the things that it means? It means that whatever God asks us to face and accomplish in this life, that the power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us and we can overcome. There is a way for us to say to ourselves, for the death that is in us, that's born out of our human experience, for that to be resurrected and for us to be able to say, I'm not going to be encumbered and impeded anymore by a fear factor and a Barzillai factor. That I'm going to accomplish things that I would never have been able to do on my own because of the power of the Holy Spirit in me. I'm going to wrap up tonight with sharing with you a video that I saw months ago, and I wasn't sure how we were going to use it, but I, I knew we were going to, and, and, and we're going to use it tonight. It's from back in 2013, and it's a Michigan middle school football team, and I would invite you to watch it with me. 
We end tonight with the football play of the month. It was executed with amazing precision by the Eagles, the Olivet Eagles. Steve Hartman has the play and the post-game analysis on the road. Between classes, they schemed and conspired. For weeks, the football players here at Olivet Middle School in Olivet, Michigan, secretly planned their remarkable play. Did anybody go, this is a crazy idea? No, everyone was in on it. But like the coaches didn't know anything about it. So we were like going behind their back. I've just never heard of a team coming up with a plan to not score. It's just like to make someone's day, make someone's week, just make them happy. The play, which was two plays actually, happened at a home game earlier this month. The first part of their plan was to try to get as close to the goal line as possible without scoring, even if it meant taking a dive on the one yard line, which it did. The crowd was not happy. Quarterback Parker Smith. But us kids knew, hey, we got this. This is our time. This is Keith's time. Keith Orr is the little kid in the brown jacket. He's learning disabled, struggles with boundaries, but in the sweetest possible way. Because of his special nature, it's no surprise that Keith embraces his fellow football players. What is surprising is how they have embraced him. Hello. We thought it'd be cool to do something for him. Because we really wanted to prove that he was part of our team and he meant a lot to us. Nothing can really explain getting a touchdown when you've never had one before. Which brings us to part two of their play. If you didn't see Keith, it's because they were so protective of him. But he was in the middle of that rush. And when you crossed the goal line, what was that like? Awesome. <laughs> it was like, did he just score a touchdown? Get your what? camera out. I'm like, ah, oh, I can't. Keith's parents, Carrie and Jim, almost missed the moment, but they got the significance. Somebody's always going to have his back from now until the day he graduates. She's right. When the football team decides you're cool, pretty much everyone follows suit. Today, Keith is a new kid, although by no means was he the only one who was profoundly changed. What was it like for you? It was like, like once I saw him going, I was smiling like about like here. Wide receiver Justice Miller. Like nothing could wipe that smile off my face. Why did it affect you so much? Because like he's never been like cool or popular and he went from being like pretty much a nobody to making everyone's day. Justice admits the play wasn't his idea. I would have not really thought about that. He says it never crossed his mind to give Keith any glory. Well, I kind of went from being somebody like mostly cared about myself and my friends to caring about everyone and trying to make everyone's day and everyone's life. Which may just make that touchdown the most successful football play of all time. Steve Hartman on the road in Olivet, Michigan. It's powerful, isn't it? Let me invite the worship team to come back up. There's a lot of things that we could talk about in that video. A lot of ways that we could use that to talk about change we want to see in ourselves and in the church. But the part that I want to focus in on is that young wide receiver at the end with tears streaming down his face when, when he realized that life wasn't supposed to be just about him. It's supposed to be about everyone else. And at the end of the day, 
That's what's going to bring about the kind of change that we want to see in our community. When it comes to racial division and, and, and political division, at some point we have to say, it's not just about me. It's got to be about other people. I have to choose to put other people ahead of me who are different than me, who have a different life experience than I do, who maybe even people I don't even understand why they think and the way they feel that they do. Something inside of me has got to say, I want to take a step back so that they can take a step forward. The fear factor, the Barzillai factor, and all the other factors that we've been talking about in this series, it keeps whispering the same thing in our ear over and over and over and over. And it's the whisper that says, you be seen, you be heard, you be out front, you win. When the whisper of the Holy Spirit says, take a step back, listen more. champion something that's important to someone else, even people that are different from you. And when we do that in a way that honors the character of Christ, I think God smiles on us. I think he smiles on you and I think he smiles on me. Maybe we'll be less known and less heard and maybe things that are important to us might feel as though they're slipping into the shadows. But you know what else I believe in? I believe in reciprocity. And as we begin to champion the causes of other people, you know what begins to happen? They begin to champion our cause in turn. It's one thing to promote yourself. It's something else when you take a leap of faith and trust that other people are, are gonna promote you. And I think that's supposed to define the community that's called Christianity. Stand with me. Father, as we step into this moment and sing this song, we don't want this to just to be about the end of a service. We don't want this to just be about a, a, a transition and a segue out of this into the rest of our night. Father, we, we, we know that these moments, that something absolutely otherworldly, unexplainable and supernatural can happen inside of us that your Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in us. For those of us who have made a vow of devotion to Christ, that there is a supernatural power at work in us that needs to come to the forefront of who we are, a Sophronismos life. And I pray for every person that's been struggling with this series because they've been struggling with politics and because they've been struggling with race. I pray, Father, that they're going to find tonight the power that they need to be the seed of unity that's planted in this community so that we can experience the kind of harmony, Jesus, that you died for us to have. In Christ's name, come on, let's worship together.